for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will men rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heavens for you and pour down for your blessing from until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord God. But you say, how have we, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. When it is profit of our keeping, his charge of a walking is in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to test and they escape. Cornell, um, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, it's on page 802 of the Church Bibles, if you want to follow along there as well, and as we uh, look at that together, we'll, we'll pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we pray that as we look at this passage now, as we consider uh, what it means to respond to you in these practical ways, that you would uh, speak to us, that you would... Um, open our eyes to see you and, and our ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And we pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I, I wonder if you've seen any good films uh, lately. Uh, the other night, uh, I, I sat down with Erskine and we watched Rocky IV, uh, which is a rite of passage for any 13-year-old uh, boy, I think, uh, to sit down and watch that. Um, and, and it didn't disappoint. Uh, uh, there's maybe particular genres of films that you like. Uh, films with uh, training montages are, are pretty high on my agenda. Um, but I also like a good heist drama. Uh, Ocean's Eleven, uh, the, the Inside Man, the, the Thomas Crown Affair. The more elaborate, uh, the better. Uh, the fact that I enjoy watching robbers breaking in, uh, breaking the law, uh, making off with millions of pounds, it, it probably ought to concern you. Uh, but I find it very satisfying to see that what starts out as a nigh-on impossible robbery of some highly secure facility or heavily guarded treasure being somehow successfully pulled off with a few twists and turns along the way. Uh, now, a heist movies are all a bit of fun, uh, and the more elaborate it is, the more improbable, the better. But I wonder if you have ever considered the fact that it is actually possible to rob God. 
You know, it might seem on the surface that to, to rob God would be the ultimate heist, that it would take an incredible amount of planning and all sorts of things would need to fall into place for that to happen. But in fact, it is surprisingly easy to do without even realizing it. And that's exactly what we see in the passage that Cornell just read to us. We're back in the book of Malachi this week, and if you've been with us during this series, then you'll know that Malachi was a prophet who was given a message from God to share with his people at a time in their history when the, the nation of Israel was at a real low point. God's people, uh, they were back in the land uh, and the temple had been rebuilt, but life was hard. They weren't prospering. Uh, and the promised king that they had been waiting for, he still hadn't come. Uh, and we've seen how this book is structured around six disputations where God makes a declaration to his people and the people dispute it. When we began our series, we saw God declare his love for his people, only for Israel to cynically question it. And that cynicism about God's love for them, it led to empty worship, which led to faithlessness, which led to the place where we left them the other week, questioning God's very presence and willingness to deal with injustice. The fact that the book is structured around an argument uh, tells us that things were in a pretty sad state of affairs. Gives us an indication of just how low the relationship between God and his people had sunk. And yet, despite his people's repeated cynicism and unbelief, God still extends his offer of mercy to them. If you look with me at verse 6, we read there, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God begins by reminding his people of his character and of his dealings with them in the past. Now, we've seen already that Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and it was written at a time when God's people, Israel, they could look back on their history, and they could look back on a huge body of evidence that would support what God says here. They could look back and they could see the truth of God's words, that he did not change. That despite their repeated rebellion, their repeated disobedience, instead of receiving what they deserve for their sin, again and again, God had responded with mercy. Time after time after time, when his people had turned from him, God, in his grace, drew them back to himself. Now, often that meant that they first had to hit rock bottom, enduring the consequences of their sinful actions before turning to him for mercy. But the wonderful picture that we have of God in the Old Testament is that when they returned to him, when they cried out for mercy, God was ready to receive them. And friends, the God who was merciful to them then 
is the same God who is merciful to His people today. The Lord does not change. The God of mercy and grace is the same God that we encounter today. Isn't that wonderful? That God does not treat His people as their sins deserve. No, when we return to Him in repentance and faith, He treats His children with grace, with compassion, with mercy. The people of Malachi's day, they could look back on all God's dealings with them in the past, and they could have confidence in His promise of mercy. But we have even more reason to be confident of God's grace. The Messiah that they were waiting for then, the promise that they were yet to see fulfilled, has been fulfilled in Jesus. Such was God's love for His people that He gave His only Son, His beloved Son, so that anyone who trusts in Him can know that we have a Savior who has already borne the punishment that we deserve for all our rebellion, for all our sins, past, present, and future. And maybe today you're burdened with sins, uh, uh, with guilt. Maybe you're struggling with the shame of a, a repeated sin that you just can't seem to put to death. And maybe you've got to the point where you feel that you just can't come to God yet again asking for forgiveness for the same thing. Well, if that's you this morning, then friend, hear these words. The Lord does not change. He has always been, and He will always be, the God of mercy, grace, and compassion. He is full of love for His children, and He is ready to receive you with arms open wide. So, return to Him and rest in His loving embrace. Despite their cynicism, despite their unbelief, God still invited these people to know His mercy, to return to Him. But yet again in this passage, we see how far they were from Him. His appeals for repentance are met with yet more unbelief. Look with me at verse 7. God says, return to me and I will return to you. But the people respond, how shall we return? And given the context of the book, we are not meant to understand that question as a, as a genuine inquiry. It's not that they were longing for reconciliation and just wanted to know how they were meant to go about it. No, they were completely unaware that they had even strayed from God. They're more like words of complete surprise. What do you mean return? We never left. These people, they were ignorant of their rebellion, of their true condition in God's sight. And that is confirmed with what comes next in verse 8 as we arrive at the fifth disputation in this book. God calls on His people to return. The people ask how, and God gives them a tangible way of demonstrating their repentance, of how a changed heart 
will be seen in a changed life. If you look with me at verse 8, we read there, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. God accuses his people of stealing. To steal was a breach of the eighth commandment. It was an incredibly serious thing to do. But look what God accuses them of here, of stealing from him. But how can you possibly rob God? And that's the question that people ask. They dispute God's claim. But you say, how have we robbed you? And so God tells them, verse 8, in your tithes, and contributions. Now, in Leviticus uh, chapter 27, God's law stated that, that a tithe of all produce was to be declared holy to the Lord. It was to be given to the priests as a way of providing financial support for the temple and its priests. And it would also be used to benefit, benefit those in need in the community. Now, the, the basic tithe, the tithe means tenth part. So, the basic tithe was 10%. But evidently, in Malachi's day, the people had got into the habit of withholding some of their tithe. They'd stopped giving the full 10%. And so, the, the temple worship and the care for those in need in the community was suffering as a result. So not only were these people breaking God's law by not giving the full tithe, they were robbing God because everything that they had, everything that they owned, was ultimately given by Him. It belonged to God. The fact that they disputed God's claim shows that they had a wrong understanding of their material possessions. Instead of seeing that they were stewards of God's good gifts, they thought that everything belonged to them, that they'd earned it, and they could do what they liked with it. Their attitude to their wealth was symptomatic of their wrong attitude towards God that we have seen throughout this book. Their cynicism about God's love for them, their empty worship and lack of love for Him, their denial of His goodness, it all led them to a place where they were blind to His provision for them. And when we get to a place where we lose sight of God's provision, one of the ways that that shows itself is in a lack of generosity towards Him. If we think that everything that we have is ours, then we will be reluctant to part with it. And that was certainly the case in Old Testament Israel in Malachi's day. And so God tells them, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So evidently, their refusal to tithe uh, what was owed to God meant that they were under God's curse. Now, what are we meant to understand by that? Well, times were tough in Malachi's day. They were facing food shortages. The economic situation was far from great in the nation. And in a cost of living crisis, everyone was looking to tighten their belts. 
And clearly from verse 9, it had become commonplace to withhold the full tithe from God. Now, maybe they saw that as wise stewardship, but that's certainly not how God saw it. As far as he was concerned, his people were robbing him. They were breaking a clear command. And God had warned his people that when they broke his commands, that would lead to his judgment. God's blessings and curses are laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. The people would have known them well. And one of the ways that judgment played out in Malachi's day was through economic hardship on a national level. Their failure to tithe was really just the tip of the iceberg. It showed a failure to trust God to provide, which came from a failure to recognize that God was good, which arose from a failure to appreciate how much God loved them. If you don't believe that God loves you, if you don't recognize that He is good, and you don't trust Him to provide for you, well, then that will affect the way that you live, and it will affect the way that you give. But God challenges Israel, verse 10, to put him to the test by giving him what has been commanded. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So in times of financial hardship, the solution was not to, to withhold the tithe, but to give it in full and trust God to provide. To tithe in the midst of hardship was a tangible way of demonstrating a changed heart. It was to believe God's declarations rather than dispute them. It was to say, I believe that you do love me, that you are truly worthy of worship, that you are good, that you are just, and that you will provide for me. And so I'll trust you by giving you back what is rightfully yours, even when times are tough. I'll put you to the test, and I will trust you to provide. And God gives His people a, a wonderful vision of what could be possible if His people put Him to the test. His storehouse would be full. The ministry among the people would be supported. Every needy person in that society would be provided for. And the surrounding nations would look on and they would see this thriving community in Israel. And they would say, wow, look at how blessed they are. There is not a hungry mouth to feed. Everyone has what they need. Wouldn't it be great to worship a God like that? If Israel would put God to the test, if they were to tithe, then they would begin to fill their fulfill their purpose as God's people of being a light to the surrounding nations. A light that would shine God's glory and would draw those around them to want to know Yahweh as well. Now, it's quite a vision, but what are we to take from this? 
Well, this passage, it ought to cause us to ask ourselves, am I guilty of the same crime of robbing God? Do I see my wealth, my possessions, ultimately as belonging to God, to be stewarded wisely by me? Or do I see everything that I have as belonging to me, for me to use as I choose? What does my giving or my lack of giving say about my attitude to God? Do I believe that God loves me, that that He is good? Do I trust Him to provide for me? And is that reflected in what I give? Now, we are not Old Testament Israel. We no longer live under the law in the same way. And some would say that as Christians... We are no longer bound by the requirement to give a tithe, 10% of our income. After all, we live under grace, not law. So we are free to, to give without being bound by a figure. But the average Christian in the West today gives less than 3% of their income to their church. Think about that for a moment. 3%. Old Testament Israel was commanded to give 10% under the law. And today, Christians who are under grace, who have far more knowledge of God's dealings with His people, who have seen the promises made to Old Testament Israel fulfilled in Jesus, who have far more reason to be thankful as they reflect on the extent of God's salvation, the incredible joy and and freedom of forgiveness of all our sins, and the glorious future hope of eternity in God's kingdom with riches that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Christians who have been given immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine, Christians in the 21st century, despite all those incredible blessings, they give a quarter under grace of what Old Old Testament Israel gave under law. And some don't even give that. How can that be right? Being under grace should not be used as a justification to be less generous than those who were under law. If anything, it should be a reason for us to give more, to see a tithe as a point to begin from rather than a place to aspire to. This passage should cause us to reflect on what our giving says about our attitude to God. It ought to challenge us And for some of us, in the light of what God says here, maybe we need to make some changes. In this passage, God calls His people to specific behavioral change. But it's a change that arises out of a heart that is shaped by who God is and what He's done. And that's the way it always is in the Christian life. We don't change our behavior in order to earn God's favor. No, we do it in light of the fact that if we are Christians, then we have already been accepted by Him. Our giving should be shaped by our appreciation of God's grace in our lives and our trust 
in his promises. It should be shaped by the sacrificial love of our Savior, who Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up all the riches of heaven, and he humbled himself to death on a cross, so that we could know the glorious hope, not of fleeting earthly riches, but of eternal riches as his forgiven people. What Jesus, what God has given us in the Lord Jesus, it ought to shape our giving to him. And so should his promises. God promises to provide for his people. And he promises that when we give, the world sits up and takes notice. Just imagine the impact that we could have if the church took these words to heart. Imagine what the church in the West could do with enough resources to advance the mission that God has given His people both at home and abroad. Imagine the churches that could be planted, the ministries that could be established, the mission that could be supported, Imagine the way that we could provide for those in our church community who have material needs. Imagine if no one had to stress about rent or bills in times of hardship. Because the generosity of their brothers and sisters in Christ meant that they had all that they needed. Imagine the witness that we would be to the community around us as they looked at the church and they saw a community where needs were met, where people were supported, where no one went hungry, where they saw God pouring out His blessing on His people in such a way that it caused them to say, wow, look at how blessed they are. Everyone has what they need. Wouldn't it be great to worship a God like that? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your lavish generosity that you have poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the immeasurable riches that we have in him. We pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be so captivated by your mercy and grace in our lives that it would shape our response to you in very practical ways, or specifically here as we've been thinking in the way that we give. Our Lord, we thank you that you have been merciful to us, that you have been gracious to us. And as we come to this table now, and as we are given a visible reminder of that mercy and grace, we pray that our hearts would be filled with the joy and delight and the satisfaction of knowing the forgiveness that we have in him. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.